0: Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hawaii Kai Church, and thank you for joining us in worship. Uh, if you are new here or if you are visiting, we do especially want to welcome you and if there are any questions that you may have about the church or about God, the gospel, the Bible, about life, about anything really, any concerns you have or or anything that you just uh, need to communicate to us, please talk to myself or to any other of the elders after service. I know that pre-COVID we used to stand in the back and and shake everyone's hand on the way out and we haven't done that in quite a long time, but that doesn't mean that we aren't available to you. We are. And, and Sunday mornings are a good time to not only visit with your church family, But they're also a great time to come and talk to one of us and express anything that maybe you've been carrying on your own for a while. And so we have Bob here, uh, Pastor Dave's in the back somewhere, uh, Josh is right there, Ben's here. You can talk to any of us after service is over, and we'd love to talk to you. Now at this time, I do invite you to take out your Bible or Bible underneath the chair in front of you and turn to the book of Luke. We're in Luke chapter 2 and verse 25 as we continue our study through the book of Luke. Luke chapter 2, verses 25 through 35 is our passage, and that passage can be found on page 857 if you are using the church Bible, page 857. Luke chapter 2 and verse 25. <clears throat> Before we look at the text, uh, would you please join me in prayer? Father, we thank you for this time of worship, and as we continue to worship you now in the hearing of your word, uh, may this sermon be clear and an accurate representation of the text and by the Holy Spirit powerful. We ask that you, by your grace, would prepare our hearts and our ears and our minds to receive your word and to be changed by it. We ask these things in Jesus' name we pray, amen. In Luke chapter 2, we have been presented with this paradox of both glory and humility surrounding the birth of Jesus Christ. Glory that the place of Jesus' birth is the city of David, Bethlehem, and his line and lineage is of King David, fulfilling the requirements of the long-awaited Messiah, the fulfillment of the prophecy spoken of, and the culmination of covenants promised for generations past." And yet, humility in that Mary's own labor and delivery occurs in a place no mother would want it to occur. That Jesus' first bassinet is a manger for animals because there is no other place for this young family. Humility in the fact that Jesus' first recorded visitors are not friends and family, but a handful of dirty shepherds on the graveyard shift of people on the religious fringe, so to speak. And yet, glory that the heavenly host of angelic beings appear in all of their ranks, and they together sing a song of praise, and they are surrounded by the brightness of Yahweh himself shining in the midnight sky, which is quite the opposite kind of group than those on the religious fringe. We witness humility in the fact that Jesus is circumcised when he need not be, that he endures pain and bloodshed of a symbol of cutting away that which is filthy, even when the Son of God has no filth within himself to cut away. He endures that, that the end of his first week out of the womb is painful, and it becomes more and more clear that the Son of God is submitting himself to live under a law that not even the best of us have ever kept. And he will fulfill that law perfectly inside and out, that in humility of humilities, this baby boy is named Jesus, Yeshua, because he will save his people from their sins, And it is in our passage this morning that that utter and abject humiliation is balanced yet again with two figures and two godly people who both testify to the utter importance of the birth of Jesus Christ. They bring to him the honor that he is due and the joy therein in being a witness of this significant event. We're going to look at one of these people today and the next one next Sunday. And we read in verse 25. He took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. The first figure we are introduced to in our text is a man named Simeon. And this is the only text in the entire Bible that this person appears in. We know almost nothing about him. If he were a priest, if he were married, if he had a career, we don't know. What tribe his family comes from? We don't know if he had any children, if he were rich, if he were poor, how tall he was, how short, how funny, how boring, what he liked to do for fun, yada, yada. We are told nothing about the things that so define so many people today. The only things that we are told about Simeon, however, are those very things which matter the most, that he was righteous and devout which speaks to his personal relationship and his intimate walk with God, the fruit of which is expressed in actual living. He was righteous and devout. And that Simeon is looking for the consolation of Israel. Israel, God's people, are oppressed at this time and under the power and domination of a pagan ruler. And Simeon longed for Israel's consolation because he wanted healing and restoration because Simeon's entire life, Every year he has lived thus far, has been one of feeling God's judgment expressed in God's people being dominated by foreign rule, and Simeon wants God to restore his people. It's as if God's people's well-being was wrapped up into his own life, so much so that though he knew one day, according to God's promises, Yahweh would restore his people, he was longing for that consolation that defined who Simeon was as a person. His religion is not merely individual, just me and God. It's corporate. His identity is in being a part of a people. And this is another reason why you can't just do church at home. That's not really church. You can't be a part of a people remotely and through a screen. Simeon is not just about me and God and individualism, but the consolation of God's people in this corporate identity. And so Simeon is righteous and he is devout, and he is waiting for the consolation of Israel. And our text also states that the Holy Spirit was upon him. Now Luke thus far has referred to God the Holy Spirit quite a bit in the opening two chapters of the book of Luke. John the Baptist is filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb in chapter 1, verse 15. And what would be the sum of his entire life? But that Jesus must increase And I must decrease. John the Baptist's life only makes sense to him when he uses that life to point to the one greater than he is. That's a mark of the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes upon Mary in chapter 1, verse 35, so that the child Jesus could be conceived in her virgin womb. The Holy Spirit's ministry to bring Jesus Christ into the world. Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit, chapter 1, verse 41. The Spirit impels her to proclaim just how blessed Mary is for bearing Jesus. Zechariah is filled with the Holy Spirit in chapter 1, verse 67, and he prophesies the significance of the coming of Jesus the Christ. And here we are in our text this morning that three times the Spirit is mentioned to direct a godly man into the temple so that his waiting and expectant eyes could finally lay them upon the person of Jesus. Notice how the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, God himself, loves to point people to Jesus Christ. And so to be spirit-filled is to be consumed with the glory of the Son of God. John Piper says this of the Holy Spirit, I've quoted this before, his ministry is to point away from himself to the wonder of God the Son and God the Father. Being filled with the Spirit means being filled with love for Christ. When Jesus promised the Spirit in John 16, 14, he said, He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The Spirit is shy. He is self-effacing. When we look toward him, he steps back and pushes forward Jesus Christ. That is the Holy Spirit's ministry. I've said this multiple times before, and Pastor David referenced this a few Sundays ago, but we'll say it again and again, that the ministry of the Holy Spirit is not so much about tongues and healings and these ostentatious kind of miracles and holy laughter to make a huge scene, which isn't even in the Bible, or gold teeth, which you may have heard about. That's not the Holy Spirit. Or spontaneity. I just feel that the Spirit had led me to turn right over here. I don't know why, but you know that Holy Spirit, He's just so spontaneous. Or to give you a specific plan for your life. Or trying to predict your own personal future. Or telling you who to marry. The Holy Spirit is not some vague, emotional, religious high, I'm really feeling the Spirit right now. In the repeating chorus of the song. Now, the primary ministry of the Holy Spirit is better to be viewed in light of bringing people to see the Son of God for who He really is. That the Spirit-filled person does not try to bring a spotlight on themselves. Look at me. Look at what tongues I speak, and look what I can do. But the Spirit-filled person brings a spotlight on Jesus Christ. Look at Him. Never mind me which is exactly what the Holy Spirit does as he is upon Simeon. He impels him to walk into that temple at just the right time, and this man, likely older, takes the child Jesus into his arms so that Simeon can gaze with all of his being fully into the face of Jesus and understand that everything that I've been hoping for and everything that I've been longing for, for myself and for my people, that my whole life, so to speak, is led by the Spirit, culminating at this very moment, because I have been given the opportunity to see the Son of God. I feel like it's a little bit reminiscent of Moses, who couldn't enter into the promised land, but by God's grace was able to look at it from afar, that Simeon wouldn't get to see, nor would he fully understand everything that Jesus the Christ is going to accomplish. The cross, resurrection, ascension, the early church, or how it is exactly that the consolation of Israel is going to occur. Simeon did not have the answer to every question that would pop up in his mind, but he didn't need the answer to every question. For the Lord's Messiah has come, and that fact is sufficient enough for this godly man, Simeon. And seeing him with his very own eyes was more more than enough to fulfill his lifelong desires. His cup is overflowing. My journey is complete. And we see in Simeon's confession within these verses, this great honor that Jesus is due from the worshipful heart of a believer and the joy therein within him. A few minutes with Jesus is all I have ever wanted for my life. That's worship. Now, the crazy thing in this glorious moment where Christ is getting the honor that he's due is still this paradox that the Lord has come, and people do, some understand the gravity of this time, and yet this all-powerful, almighty God who holds the entire world in the palm of his hand is being held in the fragile arms of an old man. That after a lifetime of seeing God's promises, seeking God's promises fulfilled, they are fulfilled in the coming of a tiny baby that needs his neck supported because, so it don't roll all over the place. The Son of God's neck is too weak. You see that paradox? And yet fully believing, Simeon's joy is so full, his life so complete, in merely seeing tiny baby Jesus that he is ready to depart in peace. I could die right now. There is no fear of death for the one who holds on to Christ in his arms. Matthew Henry, he writes this, the abundant satisfaction wherewith he welcomed this sight. He took him up in his arms He embraced him with the greatest affection imaginable, laid him in his bosom as near as his heart as he could, which was as full as joy as it could hold. In this life, this moment is all I have. My life is utterly fulfilled. What is it that you think you need to live a full life, brothers and sisters? What do you daydream about? If I only had that, then my life would be complete. If I don't get that, my life would be incomplete. I and mean, we know nothing about Simeon. Career-wise, family-wise, money-wise, if he had a nice open layout at his place, we know nothing about Simeon. Except this moment where his life is utterly filled to its brim because when all is said and done, there is only one thing you need. And his name is Jesus the Christ. Do you believe that? Because we sing that. All I have, all I want, all I need is you. Do we believe that Jesus Christ is sufficient and that he alone is more than enough? We have to press into Christ. We have to bring him close with great affection and lay him near to our heart, as near as he can be a heart which will then be so full of joy when we realize more and more who it is that God has actually given to us. And so we don't know a lot about Simeon. We are told nothing about the things that so define so many people today, but the things we do know of Simeon are the very things which matter the most. His life His character, his hopes, what he longed for, and his desire to see Jesus Christ with his very own eyes. Charles Spurgeon, he writes this, what a biography of a man, how short and yet how complete. We have seen biographies so prolix, that means so tediously long, that a full one half is nonsense and much of the other half too dull to be worth reading. Short biographies are the best, which give a concise and exact account of the whole man. And this is what Luke gives to us in these opening verses of a godly man giving our humble Savior the honor that He is due from the depths of His worshipful heart. And brothers and sisters, when all is said and done, may our own biographies be short and sweet, righteous, devout, longing for the consolation of God's people whose fullest joy is to peer into the face of Jesus the Christ, to turn our eyes upon Him, to look full into His wonderful face, that everything else grows... Strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Verse 28, Simeon continues to bless his God by continuing to gush about Jesus Christ. He took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light. For Revelation to the Gentiles, and for glory to your people Israel. While Simeon is filled with a joy and a satisfaction that has made his life complete because his very own eyes have been allowed to see the Messiah. He also knows that this joy and this satisfaction is not merely for him, and is not merely for Israel, but this is for all the peoples of all the world. Simeon knows that God's salvation is supposed to be global, and he's the first person in the book of Luke to declare it in this way. But it's not something new, and this is not something he invented. Isaiah 49, 6. It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. Jacob, Israel, that's too light a thing. The scope is too narrow. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. After the fall of humanity in the Garden of Eden, it was never God's plan as he looked out towards all of humanity to only save the subset Israel. God's salvation from the very beginning is meant to reach as far as sin has corrupted. Every single person in all of humanity outside of Jesus, Adam and Eve, is born with this bent away from God, away from the God who has made us. And the imagery is such that the world and the nations and the peoples have been in this darkness and yet in the coming of jesus is this light of revelation the light of the world by which we might see ourselves for who we are and god for who he is that the darkness of ephesians 4:18 this darkness in understanding this alienation from god this ignorance that comes from a hardness of heart would no longer be what defines us. Isaiah 42, 7 takes that same imagery of this light for the nations, which is going to be used to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon. From the prison, those who sit in darkness, I am the Lord that is my name, my glory I give to no other. The light for revelation reveals to us that we are the blind ones. We are the prisoners. We sit in darkness, and the worst thing about this darkness and this kind of blindness is that we didn't even know that we we're blind. It didn't feel like we were in the dark. And the horrible thing about this kind of dungeon is that it actually felt like home. And it is here in these words of a spirit-filled Simeon that we have the purpose for which Jesus is born, for salvation to those who are perishing. As light for those in the darkness, as freedom from those who are enslaved, and this is for all peoples and all nations. It doesn't matter what you've done in the past or the pits that you find yourself in, even though you dug it yourself. Jesus Christ is born to be your Savior. Christ's coming is like the sunrise after a very black night to the very people who need light the most. And for this worldwide scope, Simeon's joy is made even more full as he thinks about these very rays emanating outward to the ends of the earth. The Christian faith is never to have as its ends a kind of country club where we keep the good boys and the good girls on the inside and make sure the riffraff don't get up in here. No, we are all the riff And the mission and the purpose for the birth of the Son of God is this salvation to the ends of the earth. Sometimes our Christianity is so very inward and insulated and self-protected and walled off where we lose that sense. Salvation is not just for me and you. That's too little a thing. And there's a world of darkness that needs to see the light of Jesus Christ. Israel, by the time the first century, had viewed the pagan nations merely as these are the enemies that need to be conquered. These are the bad guys we need to be freed from, not the very people they were supposed to go tell it on the mountain and declare the glory of God to. But it was supposed to be the highest glory of Israel, the nation that utterly distinct from the rest of the world. They were to be a light to the rest of the world, that their joy would grow as they would witness the nations coming to know Yahweh, and they lost that. And I think it's easy for us to lose that as well. The world's a mess. Things are not the way they are supposed to be. And the temptation is just to wall it off then. Get hold up, bunker in, cover the eyes and ears of our children, and just kind of ride it out until Jesus comes back. While we shake our heads with disgust and voice our disapproval at where society is headed. If that's us, then we've lost our bearings. Part of the joy that Simeon has in seeing our Savior is also understanding that his life and his salvation is not just for us, but it is for all peoples. And perhaps if you find yourself in an unhappy place or a dissatisfied place, it's not because you don't have enough to keep stuff to keep you occupied, but you're occupied with the wrong kind of stuff. That The greatest joy reserved for you is seeing people come to know Him. The greatest joy outside of our own salvation is witnessing the salvation of others. Now, in very practical terms... Think of it, think of who it is that God has placed in your life that he's called you to shine the light of Christ onto. We need to give ourselves to a cause that's greater than little old me and my little life and how everything relates to this narcissism that's just painted with a Christian brush. Sometimes we need to look out into the darkness and see how bleak it is and yet know that Jesus Christ is sufficient to shine into even this. Simeon already knows, looking at this little baby Jesus in his frail old arms, this is God's salvation for all peoples. But I also want you to notice in these verses that Simeon speaks of having seen God's salvation, verse 30, right when his eyes lay upon this child. Simeon does not know God's plan of salvation. He doesn't. He's not gonna hear Jesus preach that is gonna be unlike any before him with this kind of authority. He's not gonna witness Jesus' miracles a demonstration of his very own identity of the Son of God, that his healing of the blind and his opening of the ears of the deaf and his touching the leper whose skin has been ravaged and healing are all signs of how Christ can restore the broken. He's not going to see Jesus walk on water or still the storm or cast out demons or raise the deceased because God is sovereign over earth, land, sea, and Jesus is God. He's sovereign over the spiritual realm. And he's powerful over death itself. Simeon doesn't know any of these things. He's not going to see these things. He's not going to know about the disciples he would call to himself or the tax collectors and the prostitutes, ex-prostitutes, that would become his very own people. That this Jesus has called the sick to himself, not the well. He doesn't know anything about the betrayal of Judas the rejection of the scribes and Pharisees. He knows nothing of scourging, dividing the garments of Christ by lot. He knows absolutely nothing about the cross. That's how we get saved, the cross. That Jesus being God himself demonstrated in the whole of his life. That it would actually be him who would be the one to pay our penalty and assume our guilt in our place. He knows nothing about the cross, nor does he know about the resurrection. He knows nothing about these facets of the gospel message. And so how then can Simeon say, past tense, for my eyes have seen your salvation? Didn't even happen yet. Because it is in a very profound way that Yahweh's salvation is not merely the plan or the necessary events that need to occur, but God's salvation is the person. I think Ralph Davis says it very well, referring to Jesus. He not only will bring salvation, but he himself can rightly be called salvation. He will not only bring consolation to Israel, but he himself is the consoler. In one sense, we can say that salvation is a plan, God's staggering scheme to have worldwide Jewish-Gentile people, as Isaiah 49 says. But salvation is not only a plan but a person. Yahweh's servant Messiah himself is Yahweh's salvation. Having him, we have salvation. Salvation is having Jesus himself and Simeon realize that. I wonder how many of us view salvation as simply that, having Jesus as our own, rather than just an escape from hell or the bringer of forgiveness or the deliverer of blessings, that salvation itself, eternal life itself, is to know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent, John 17, 3. Simeon's understanding here, while he knows not all the details of how everything is going to be played out, is simply this child in my arms is God's salvation, God's salvation is the person, Jesus, the Christ, and again, everything I hope for and long for, for myself and the people of God, and for this world in darkness, it is enough that Jesus has come, and God can take me now, for my eyes have seen everything that I need to see. But while the Son of God is born as a light to all the world, who's been locked up in darkness... The truth is not everyone's going to receive them. Simeon continues in verse 34. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. While the child Jesus is born to be the salvation of all peoples, and all the nations, even to the ends of the earth. Not all the peoples of the earth will receive this gift that God has given to us. And this is a tragic flip side to everything Simeon has previously rejoiced about. While Joseph and Mary are marveling at Simeon's words of a global salvation, which is the greatest news imaginable, Simeon is also making it very clear that the bad news is that people are still going to reject him. Jesus is going to divide people. He's going to divide Israel. Some will rise and some will fall. He's going to be a sign opposed or spoken against because although Jesus came from Israel, demonstrated everything to be the Messiah, Israel knew him not. <clears throat> and many in the nation would be the very ones responsible for putting him up on that cross in their rejection of him. And Mary, the, the woman who carried Jesus, and births Jesus and nurses Jesus and holds the little hands of Jesus, teaching him how to walk step by step and feeding him and making sure food doesn't fall out of his mouth, treasuring everything she's heard about Christ before he was born and everything he hears, she hears about him after he is born. She is going to undergo a pain that the only way to describe it is that a sword is going to pierce her own soul because she's gonna see the anguish of seeing her perfect and sinless and loving child, the long-awaited, prophesied, promised one, there's going to be this anguish of watching my son, this Messiah, live a life of suffering and rejection that is going to feel like a dagger in her aching heart because the road and path that Jesus has to travel in order to be the savior of the world is very dark and it is very costly And we see in Simeon's words, this foreshadowing that the rest of the book of Luke is going to lay out before us, because as beautiful as this child is, not everyone is going to recognize that beauty. And what was true then is still true today. The glorious news is that the Son of God has been given into this world to save the world. And the hard side, the tragedy of it, is that so much of the world in darkness is going to stubbornly reject the light. Jesus is the object of love and of affection and of worship and of great joy, and yet he is still the object of enmity, hostility, conflict, and opposition. And our response to the person Jesus exposes exactly what it is in our hearts. Daryl Bogg, he's a New Testament guy, scholar, he writes this, Jesus is God's litmus test for where a person is. How you know a person's doing where they're at? Jesus is a litmus test. J.C. Rowe writes this, and now what do we think of Christ? That is the question which ought to occupy our minds. What thoughts does he call forth in our hearts? This is the inquiry which ought to receive our attention. Are we for him or are we against him? Do we love him or do we neglect him? Do we stumble at his doctrine or do we find it as life from the dead? Let us never rest until these questions are satisfactorily answered. You got to answer those questions in your heart. Don't worry if the other person's looking at you or not. You got to figure out. Jesus is your litmus test. How do you look at him? How do you respond to him? Whenever Christ is preached, whenever Jesus is proclaimed like it is now, he's going to divide people, and he's going to show to us where we really are. And none of us in this room can be indifferent about Jesus. You can't be in the middle about him. He's either Savior and Lord and King who you love and trust in and live your life for, and you're going to rise. Or he's the object of scorn, no matter how much you deny it and neglect who you ignore and disbelieve and look towards other things to focus your attention and effort and heart upon, and then you're going to fall. You either look to Jesus with the eyes of Simeon and find life and life eternal, or you're going to turn your back on him and look for something better instead. As we start to walk our way to our own condemnation, we can't be indifferent. We can't have it both ways. And so Jesus Christ is the light to the ends of the earth for salvation, and Jesus Christ is also the light that exposes exactly what it is within us and what it is we really worship and what it is we really live for and where it is we really find ourselves going. Now, as we come to the Lord's Supper on the second Sunday of the month, the, the bread and the cup, they preach to us. They don't got mouths, but they preach, and they preach the magnitude of God's love for us. My body is given for you. Eat of me. The whole of Jesus. Everything he is is given for us. My blood is shed for you. Not only does the Son of God live perfectly for us, but he dies willingly for us as well. That the judgment and the punishment we deserve, the wrath of God we have earned, let it fall on me instead. That by my wounds they might be healed. The bread and the cup, they preach to us that the whole of himself is given. All of him is given to the one who will receive him by faith. We all need to come to this table. Some of us need to come to Christ for the very first time. Some of us need to come back to Jesus as if it were our very first time. But we must come to Christ. Christ. You must come to Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of your Son, glory and humility, the paradox. <coughs> and somehow, the like Lord of creation might be a baby, and the only perfect one might be slain for us. Father, I pray that you give us the eyes of Simeon, and that we wouldn't look around elsewhere and Be defined by this or that, but our biographies might be short and sweet, that we look to you, we look for consolation, and that our highest joy would to be told on to you as tightly as we can. Use us, God, to the ends of the earth that our joy might overflow to the nations. We ask these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.